Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was here, I, I've been diagnosed with walking pneumonia. The difference between walking pneumonia and regular pneumonia is you don't feel like walking when you have regular pneumonia. And with walking pneumonia, you just feel pretty bad. Um, after a week and a half or so of getting better slowly, I wasn't sure if I was relapsing or just on the tail end of it, so I went back to the doctor. And when I was taken back in that hallway, headed toward that room, right after you get on the scale every time, <laughs> thankfully they have the numbers posted over here. It's electronic scale, so you don't have to look at it every time. And as I'm going in, you know, I'm talking and being the way I am, and the doctor goes, I was just thinking about you. And I thought, I'm not sure if that's good, if my doctor's thinking about me when uh, I haven't been there for a little while. I said, is that bad or good? Did you not expect me to get better? <laughs> After the exam, he said, well, you don't need any more drugs. You need to rest and let your body work this out. So we discussed what that meant. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm happy to take a week off. I, I, don't, uh, I don't like unproductivity, but... Uh, he said, take a week off and have limited activity. I said, well, what does that mean, limited activity? He said, well, you can take a walk or you know, do some things, whatever. So I did that, and I've been able to see how that with an illness like walking pneumonia, I guess rest is very important. So one of the restful activities I've continued in is having breakfast at McDonald's <laughs> and reading the newspaper. It's very restful. Sleep in, go to McDonald's. Um, well, one of the days early on to this week-long process, I was sitting there reading the paper and coughing, like I have been doing for the last month, and the fellow who was sitting in the booth ahead of me looking the other direction, he got up to leave, so he gets up out of his booth, he goes like this, and he goes, gives me a dirty look. Apparently, he didn't like me coughing right behind him. I couldn't understand that at all. Although, you know, I have noticed that when, when you cough and then say walking pneumonia, people immediately <laughs> pull back just a little bit because they aren't sure if you're contagious or not. Doctor said, I'm not contagious. I took the antibiotics. People these days, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm not that old, but I've been around a few years, are way more careful around disease than they used to be. I mean, even when I was a firefighter 30-plus years ago, I mean, we were just coming off the days when you did mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. The whole idea of putting a bag on somebody's mouth instead of putting your mouth on them was kind of a new idea. And these days, people do CPR like this. You notice they've miraculously come up with the idea that you don't need to do respirations anymore. Just do the compressions. Uh, that's probably because people didn't want to get around that. 
And I would say that people are way more careful, even paranoid, about illness and the spreading of germs than they are about the spreading of false doctrine. I would dare say in contemporary Christianity, it's become popular to not look for the germs, the spiritual germs that are being passed around. What we're going to see as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 is we have got to stay away from doctrine that is contagious because it will have a negative impact on us. Follow as I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Well, we're going to start back in verse 14, just so you get the context. We've already looked at verse 14 and 15, but remind them of these things, the things he's just been talking about, the doctrine of Christ, the gospel. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We looked at that idea of dividing, being a craftsman, cutting it straight, being a craftsman with the word of God. But, verse 16, shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, They have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. In this passage, Paul is warning Timothy about doctrine that is asserted to be biblical, but it is not biblical. And he's warning them about the teachers that purvey such doctrine. Our word for false teaching, is heresy. And it's based on a New Testament word which is not contained in this passage, but it is other, it is other places in the New Testament. And it's the word that's often translated sect. The sect of the Pharisees, the sect of the Sadducees, even the sect of the Nazarenes. That's a word for Christian, a term for Christians. The word sect literally meant a division. And the idea was that if you, if you looked, for instance, at, the, at the, the Old Testament Jewish religion, there was a break-off group called the Pharisees. There was a break-off group called the Sadducees. And early in Christianity, they considered Christians to be a break-off group that they called Nazarenes, or eventually called Christians. And the reason this word has, I mean, the Greek word is actually heresaeus, Okay, it's, it's, it's a transliteration to the word heresy. And it means somebody who takes part of the doctrine and not the whole. And as a result of that, and perhaps modifies some of that truth, they come up with doctrine that is not biblical. We also use the term false doctrine. Um, any teaching that claims to be from the Bible but is truly not. And then, of course, a person who believes or teaches false doctrine is a heretic. And so I wanted to define those words right up front because I'm going to be using them today, and I want to make sure you understand. So the first thing that Paul tells Timothy is we've got to recognize heresy. Again, the English word heresy comes from that Greek word heresis, and it's often translated sect. It's not here, but clearly the content of of heresy is spoken about. Look at verse 16. 
he says you should stay away from profane and idle babblings. Profane and idle babblings. And then he goes down and talks about verse 18, they've strayed from the truth. So clearly he's talking about people who have strayed away from the truth and the content of what they teach. The word profane is the opposite of holy. The word profane is the opposite of holy. The word holy in the scripture literally means something special. I mean, in our house we have some china dishes sitting on a sideboard, it's called, in the dining room. Those china dishes are holy. I don't drink Diet Coke out of those. <laughs> okay, they're not nearly big enough, you know. We used to have them on top of a, of, a, of a large piano we had, and they were holy, and the kids didn't play with them, and they didn't touch them. That's literally what the word holy means. When it's applied to us, it means we are set aside to God's use. We are, we are special to God. And the word profane means the opposite of that. It means common. It means just of, a, of, a, of an average, uh, you know, if the dirt is profane, the dishes are not, you know, that kind of thing. And then the word idle literally means empty. <clears throat> we tend to think of the word vain as, uh, oh, excuse me, in, uh, help you get the words right together here. Shit, profane and idle, I think in the King James they use the word vain. We tend to think of the word vain as mean, meaning self-centered, but the root idea is empty. As in, if you look in the mirror, like the fawns used to do, and go... You know, can't mess with perfection kind of a thing. That's empty praise because it's you giving yourself praise. Self-praise has no real content. It is empty. And so what Paul tells Timothy here is, now Timothy, there is some stuff being passed around as though it came out of the Bible, but in reality, it is the opposite of holy, and it is empty. What is it empty of? It's empty of power. It's empty of godliness. And so we would just say, what could be more profane than a human being elevating their own ideas to the level of God's truth? What could be more empty than a human being equating the power of their words with the power of God's words? And so false doctrine or heresy takes one of two directions in regarding God's word. It either adds to it, or subtracts from it. Look at the warning that God gives at the end of the Bible. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. It's not an accident that God put these two verses at the end of the book of Revelation, which completed the Bible. Yes, it's probably talking about the book of Revelation, but again, it's not an accident that that's the only place in the Scripture words like that are spoken. And God says, don't add to it and don't take away from it. When we think about heresy, that's what happens. People either add to it or take away from it. And let's go back to the original heresy and think that through a minute. From Genesis chapter 3. Now remember, God said to Adam and Eve, have children, tend the earth, you know, uh, rule the earth. 
And But there's one tree that you cannot eat from it because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, with that context, we read Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Is that adding to God's truth or subtracting? Is it adding to God's truth or subtracting? It's adding. God said, that tree, don't eat that. He says, did God say you can't eat of every tree? We go on. And the woman said to the serpent, this is her response, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that adding or subtracting? What did she add? God didn't say you can't touch it. We go on. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. <laughs> That's subtracting. He said, No, you're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that adding or subtracting? <laughs> What's that? Mutating. And I understand, and I thought about that too. We can say there's three possibilities, adding, subtracting, or changing. But when you change, you either add or subtract. Either you take the pure word of God or you go, you know what? There's one more thing that needs to be there. Or you go, you know what? That one part, it doesn't belong there. I remember some Mormons coming to our house when I was a kid, and the Mormons said, do you know that the scripture makes reference to the language of the angels? And that's true. There is a reference to the language of the angels. But the Bible doesn't tell us what the language is. But the Book of Mormon does. Okay? If God thought you knew, needed to know what language the angels spoke, he would have put it there. But when people start adding to or taking away from, it becomes heresy. Now, who is the prince of the power of the air according to Scripture? Satan. Make no mistake about it. The same guy who was working in Genesis chapter 3 is still at work today, and he inspires his subjects to add to the Scripture and subtract from the Scripture. Look back with me now at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying, here was their particular heresy, the resurrection has already passed. Is that adding to or subtracting from? I think it's subtracting from. Certainly we could say it's modifying the truth. You say, well, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection, but it's past. What was this error about? It was about the resurrection. And so we have to ask the question, and we're doing this by way of example today. I understand that for many of us here today, the resurrection may not be the burning question you walked into church with. But we need to look at it by way of example so we can understand what heresy does. What would it mean 
if the resurrection was past. Now, think about Timothy. He's living in approximately, let's call it 70 A.D. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again approximately 33 to 35 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood. And here's Timothy 30-plus years later. And there are teachers saying the resurrection is past. So what's that going to mean for Timothy? Well, it would, it one, and we have to come with possibilities because we don't have a recording of exactly what they taught. But if they said the resurrection is past, it would certainly mean there's going to be no future resurrection of your body. Boom. You're going to die and it's going to be done. When you die, that's it. That's a possibility of what they were teaching. No resurrection to judgment for sinners. If the resurrection is past, then sinners are not going to be resurrected to the great white throne judgment and receive the recompense for their sins. It could mean that the resurrection is only a spiritual thing. They might have looked back and say, oh yes, there was a resurrection, but it was, it was just spiritual. It was just when you got born again, there's no physical thing involved. Now, you can look at any of those possibilities, and none of them are good, because we have to say, what's the big deal? Well, let's just start with Jesus. Jesus said, there's going to be a resurrection of the good to eternal life, of the bad to punishment. And if it is passed by the time of Timothy, then how does Timothy's time frame figure into God's plan? Okay? Sometimes you have to think a little bit when people are teaching so you can say, what in the world's going on? What happens so often is a new teacher springs up and boy, he's popular and he's sensational and he's the hippest thing going and people glom after him and they don't stop to say, what does it mean when he teaches this? What is the extrapolation? What is the, what is the, uh, the end of his teaching? If there's no resurrection, then what's going to happen to Timothy? What's going to happen to the people in his time frame? That's a possibility. Or, if the resurrection is past, does that mean only a few made it to heaven and the others are on their own? There's a popular religion today that teaches that. That there are a limited number that are going to make it to heaven and everybody else is going to maybe make it to the new earth or else they're just going to zip. No hell. But they don't teach about a resurrection to a final judgment. Or... Did they spiritualize the resurrection, claiming it would never be a physical reality, just a spiritual rebirth? No matter which erroneous way you take it, it tears at the heart of Christian hope. I do not want you to be ignorant about these things, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are resurrected. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The message of Hymenaeus and Philetus tore the heart right out of Christian comfort. Tomorrow, Pastor Ralph is going to lay to rest the body of Lucille Shelton. And I know he'll stand there and say something like this. 
Lucille's in the ground, her spirit's with the Lord, but someday her body's going to be resurrected and it's not going to be weak and sickly anymore. It's going to be perfect. And we're all going to be with her together in heaven. That is the Christian hope. And if you do anything with that doctrine, it tears the hope out of Christianity. And so Paul says, Timothy, you can't stand for this. Because this stuff hurts people. It, we have to recognize the result of heresy, and the result of heresy is sin. Look in verse 16. Shun profane and idle babblings. Why? Because they will increase to more ungodliness. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a school of thought that migrated from Germany, essentially, to the U.S., and it was called Higher Criticism. And the higher criticism was taking the scientific method that had been created through the Renaissance and applying the scientific method to the Bible. And the scientific method essentially says we make a theory and then we experiment and we prove our theory and essentially come up with with, uh, scientific laws. Now, when you read the Bible and it says that Jesus made mud and he put it on a guy's eyes and he said, you go wash and you're going to be able to see, those higher critics looked at that and said, that's not possible. And when when Jesus said, I say to you, your sins are forgiven, rise up and walk to the lame man, they said, that's not possible. We can't do a scientific experiment and prove whether that really works. And they went on and on through the miraculous parts of the Bible and eventually got to the virgin birth. And they said, well, that's not possible. And so this school of higher thought, which is where the the Christian term liberalism, not political liberalism, but the Christian term, where it came, and it came across the waves, and it started infecting the seminaries, schools like Princeton and Harvard, that used to train people who believed the Bible to be pastors of churches. And it infected them and inflicted them. And the pastors went out and they started teaching their people. And you know what the result of that is today in the Presbyterian Church, USA? If you're a woman and you get pregnant, it's your right to make your own choice to abort that baby. If you're a homosexual, well, that's the way God made you. It's okay to be homosexual, even to be a pastor who's a homosexual. And we look at those doctrines and we go, how in the world do they get there from this Bible? You know how they got there? A hundred years ago, they were over here and there was profane and vain babbling. And you know what they did? Instead of turning their back on it, they went, Oh, these people have earned doctorates. They must be smart. We can't look like stupid, uneducated rubes. We've got to talk with them and listen with them. We've got to somehow justify our beliefs to them. And what happened was the PhDs with the higher criticism prevailed. And today, the Presbyterian Church USA, just as one example, preaches heresy. 
Why does doctrine matter? Because doctrine, right doctrine leads to right living, and wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. Thirty years ago, when I was in Bible college, I heard a pastor from another one of those large denominations. He was a bishop in the Methodist church. I don't know, not the free Methodist, you know, the big Methodist group. And he, he came to our class to tell us what they believe and so on. We were, that was a class, what it was about, it was kind of contemporary theology. And he laughed at us for believing in the literal resurrection of Christ, the physical, literal resurrection of Christ. Right in our class, right to our face. Okay? Hey, that is not going to lead to more righteousness. That is going to lead to more sin. And that's what Paul said, Timothy, stay away from this stuff because the result of that stuff is more and more ungodliness. And and not only is there ungodliness, but there is an aggressive nature to heresy. Um, if, If you're squeamish, Kim, where are you? Are you in here? Sometimes when I use these really explicit examples, Kim gets a little sick. Their message, verse 17, will spread like gangrene. It's translated cancer in my translation. It should be the word gangrene. You know what gangrene is? Gangrene is when bacteria gets into part of your body through some other illness, and it starts to eat your flesh. And you know what the solution for gangrene is? Do you know what drug they give you for gangrene? This is a trick question, class. Where are my medical people? Get, do, do, do animals get gangrene? And what's the solution, brother? Cut it off. There is no solution to gangrene. The closest thing we have in our modern illnesses is, is flesh-eating bacteria. That starts anywhere. Gangrene tends to start, I think, in an extremity. And it tends to come from some other thing like frostbite or like uh, diabetes or something like that. And and that's why they have to cut things off. Do you know what? That's the word that God uses to describe false doctrine. Gangrene. Not somebody somebody else's nice idea. And so we've got to treat it like gangrene. Could I give you a little phrase based on gangrene and based on this idea that 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 this uh, false doctrine will increase. And here's a little phrase. No heresy rests alone. No, no, No heresy rests alone. If you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. The Apostle Paul, before he's even gone, says this in Acts 20. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock... Also from among yourselves, from within the church, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Friends, we've got to recognize the aggressive nature of heresy, and we have to respond strongly to it. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 16 again. Shun. Shun. Give it a wide berth. The first psalm says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of sinners. He does not stand 
in the, in the path. He does not sit in the seat. It describes this progression of, of kind of dabbling in sin and then, and then standing there in sin and finally sitting down and resting in it. And Paul says, Timothy, stay away from it. A month or two ago, whenever my little journey with respiratory distress started, if you'd said to me, if you'd said to me, Pastor Dave, there's the germs that'll give you walking pneumonia. And if I was walking along and you said, there's the germs, you know what I would have done? And maybe gone way out there and then come back around on my walk. There's no way I would walk next to that. And neither would you. And neither would the guy at McDonald's that gave me a dirty look. None of us would dabble with contagious illness. And yet when somebody starts speaking some new doctrine and, and, our, and on first blush we're going, that doesn't sound quite right. Somehow we think, well, you know, I can't, I can't be an ignorant rube. I gotta know this and I gotta talk to this guy and I gotta dialogue and, and so on. And Paul says, Timothy, Timothy was a pastor. I think he probably knew the word better than the average guy in his church. Paul says, Timothy, you go the other way. You shun. You move away. Perhaps there are some of you today who tend to be contrarians and you'd say oh you know sometimes people want their children to get an illness so they'll get it done and get it over with you know one kid's got chicken pox get the others all exposed you know and you would try to counter the idea of shunning false doctrine would you do that with gangrene you know my one child's got gangrene i want the others to all get it so they all get immune to it that's how much sense this makes. We have to avoid it, as the NIV translates the word shun. Avoid it. The most literal rendering would be turn your back on it. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 is a harsh passage. And uh, I understand our responsibility to witness to unbelievers. And nothing I am saying today takes away from that. But we're not talking about the average unbeliever here. We're talking about a heretic, which is a person who calls himself a Christian, but is pushing false doctrine. Look what Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not really a different one. In other words, there's no such thing as two gospels. But there are some who trouble you, and they want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if me, the Apostle Paul, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have already preached, let him be accursed. You know what that literally means? It means let him go to hell. That's pretty serious stuff. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you other than what, we have, what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, how do you work out your responsibility to witness, your responsibility to train people in that context of avoiding false doctrine? 
with considerable prayer and effort. I mean, ultimately, if, you, if a person in your life is a heretic and they're pushing this doctrine, don't say, I have to be strong enough to stand up to it. I guarantee you they will win. You need to pull back from that relationship. You need to pull back. Now, you know, there can still be pleasantry. There can still be night, you know, human civility. But you've got to guide. You've got to be very careful. And frankly, when they come to your door, could we tell you about XYZ Church? Maybe say something right up front. Are you interested in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ as I believe it? (laughs) And if they aren't, be very careful. I had a girl in my church in Tukwila married a fellow from one of those churches because they have such a family emphasis. Okay? Now, I'm confident before she did that, she wasn't paying a lot of attention in church, just from other things in her life. But all I'm telling you is, she was raised in our church all of her growing up years, and she married a guy from one of those churches. Don't say it won't happen. Avoid it. Step back from it. Go the other direction. Now, let me apply this just real simply and plainly today. As I prepared to preach in between my restful visits to McDonald's this week, (laughs) I thought, oh, we're going to have dedication of children. This isn't really that kind of message. And And then the bells clanged, and I went, Oh, yes, it is. Because as a parent, there you go. Thank you for that note of encouragement, brothers. We must realize how critically important doctrine is. And so I want to apply this to three different groups of people today, just in a kind of a broad application. And the first one would be to parents. Those of you, and I I know those of you who stood here already know God's word. You're already committed to that, so there's no criticism here. But I would just say, parents, if I was to apply this message on truth to you, I would say, here's the question. How are you going to raise your children? Whose wisdom are you going to use? Are you going to use the wisdom of of Benjamin Spock? Baby and child care. The most widely recommended and best-selling handbook for parents ever published and here, what was the date on this? The date on this version, oh man, that's oh, old enough to be yellowed by now. date on this version is 1970. At that time, 22 million copies have been sold. Okay? Now, is Benjamin Spock a complete idiot? No. But he is not going to teach you what this book will. And the question is... <laughs> Is this book primary or this book primary? And I know today there's lots of other books, so this this is an old example. The question you have to ask parents is, where do I get my wisdom for my children? The most common place that we get wisdom for our children is right out of our own reserves. And that comes to us from the way we were raised and the, the views we've taken on the Bible. And uh, that may be more dangerous than this book. When you have a question about raising your children, is this where you go? Either mentally to scan the verses that you've learned, the principles you've learned from God, or or, or actually physically saying, okay, I've got this problem with my child. 
one of our children, not this one, gave us some real challenge for a few years. And there were many times when after we talked to that child on the phone, we had to just step back and go, are we, how are we doing this? Are we doing the right thing? How are we communicating? What are we saying? What is the way that we're talking? And really try to, to go back to here because we felt like we were in a battle that was either going to go one way or the other, but it wasn't going to go down the middle. And we had to work at that. Parents, who are you going to go to? Uh, years ago, there was a man who taught a seminar that was widely popular. And I went to it because somebody paid my way, and I didn't know any better. And uh, the fellow read a lot of Bible verses. But in truth, in revisiting the material, he was the first guy to combine a lot of psychology with a little Bible and a lot of his own ideas. And you know what the subtitle on the front of the book is? Giving the world a new approach to life. Really? A new approach. You have figured out the Bible like nobody ever has. Or you figured out something that's not in the Bible like everybody has? Really? I have a friend who was a pastor. You know how that scripture says the profane and idle babblings leads to sin? I have a pastor friend, used to be a pastor friend, who followed that man's dogmatic ideas about the scripture all the way till his wife left him because of all of the legalistic burden that was placed on her following his ideas. And she went on to a life of worse sin. And he went on to a failed second marriage and is now in his third, and I'm praying to God that it works because he married a friend of mine. I'm here to tell you, it's either the pure truth of God that we cling to or we're following some other method of, 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 of our life. And there's plenty of people out there today who are gleaning so-called wisdom from all kinds of sources trying to say, here is the way to go. Uh, you know, uh, probably a year ago, I got a phone call from a guy saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to have the satellite uh, download of the leadership seminar, and it's got all these big important people in it, and it's going to be at XYZ Church here in the county. I'd really like to encourage you to come. The guy was very enthusiastic. And as we talked, I found out he was only a believer for a year or so, and he was a businessman. And boy, he just thought this was going to be a great thing. And I said, friend, I'd already seen the promotional, and I'd already seen the unbelievers who were part of the teaching team teaching the church how to lead. And I just said, friend, when I want leadership principles, I go here. There are stuff there that is not good. And this guy, it was just, I just blew him right off of his saddle. I wasn't trying to. He had never thought about the fact that there might be worldly wisdom mixed in with the godly. Biggest application I can make, of course, is to the church. Oh, I, I forgot to bring my wallet with me into the pulpit here. When you go to McDonald's and hand them a $20 bill, what do they do with it?
They're trying to see if it's the real deal. Okay, 20s, okay? A lot, of, a lot of those fast food places say, don't give us anything bigger than a 20 because if they get a phony, the pain isn't too bad on a 20. But they hold it up and they'll take a, take a pen and stripe across it and you know, it's supposed to be a certain color or whatever. And of course, what they're looking for when they hold it up is that authenticity strip that's placed inside the paper. Now, let me tell you what they don't do. They don't take your 20 and turn around to a large display of all of the false ways you can make a 20. And go, no, 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 no. Thank God. (laughs) Slow enough as it is sometimes. They just go, is the marker of authenticity there or not? If the marker of authenticity is there, they're good to go. And that's what we have to do as Christians. We have to know the marks of authenticity so that when somebody gives us an idea about life or parenting or business or whatever it is, we can, we can hold it up to the light and say, is that real? Is that true? That's why this passage starts with Paul saying, Timothy, study the word so that you'll be a craftsman in it. I'm reading a book about the sinking of a fishing ship in Alaska, the Alaska Ranger. It went down with 47 souls on board, and the majority of them were, were, were rescued by the Coast Guard, making it the largest rescue in Coast Guard history. And uh, the crew had to abandon ship. Ship was taking on water from the rear, and they had to abandon ship. And they have life rafts, and they have uh, uh, survival suits, and if they, if they put the survival suit on right, if they get into the life raft, they've got, they've got several hours of survivability, even in freezing water. I mean, it's, it's salt water, so it can be frozen. I mean, it can be 32 degrees, or I think they said it was 35 degrees. Yeah, big difference there. And uh, so they can get in. And even in the survival suit, if they've done it right and if they act right in the water, they have probably at least an hour of survivability, maybe a little bit longer, depending on some factors. But not all of them got in their suit right. Not all of them made it into rafts. Some of the rafts were torn away by the, ho- the howling storm that was going on. And it's a, it's a driving snowstorm in 20-foot swells in the ocean. And they're going into it and getting in those life rafts. And, and, and in this book, they describe, the, they describe the, the fishermen and they describe the, coast, the various Coast Guard elements. And... One of the things that I can, I can just visualize is these guys being in the ocean for an hour, some of them two, and they look off on the horizon and they go, there's a light. And then they go, oh, if it's a light from a ship, it's going to be still a couple of hours till they get here because you can see so far away with a, with a light from the ship. And then pretty soon they hear the, the sound of the rotors and they go, oh, the Coast Guard is here, we're saved. And they were. Friends, this is that light in your life. And if anything else holds the position of that light in your life, you're doomed. And I just want to encourage you today to recommit yourself to saying, I have to know this. I have to know the marks of authenticity for my family's sake, for my sake, for the people around me's sake. I must shun the foolishness and embrace the godliness. May God help us to know his truth and to reject 
the false teaching. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh, it's so easy to read a book or watch TV, do some other things, and not be people of the book. Help us. Help us get in there and read. Help us study. Help us pay attention. Help us learn. Help us memorize so that we will not be taken in by the heretics and the heresy that is so prevalent around us. Protect us, Father. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.